Good morning, everyone. I want to thank our sponsors uh, this morning. Chana and Gavriel Lanis, Chaim and Linda Newman, Gary and Marcia Schrager, and Robert and Andrea Seewald, for Afua Shlema, for all their loved ones, and gratitude for the Parsha class, and by Harriet Schneier as well. Thank you very much for your sponsorship. If you'd like to sponsor in the coming weeks, you can speak to Linda or Matthew in the Shul office. This week we have the privilege of reading Parsha's Vayigash. And as always, we'll uh, provide an overview of the Parsha, and then examine specific psukim, look through specific verses together. Parsha's Vayigash concludes what's maybe the greatest cliffhanger in the Torah. The end of last week, Miketz were in suspense all week, waiting to find out what will happen in this great confrontation. The very end of last week's Parsha, Yehuda confronts Yosef. Vayomer Yehuda, manu mar and so on and so forth. Yehuda is confronting Yosef at the end of last week's parsha, and yet our parsha begins Vaigash Elav Yehuda, that Yehuda approaches Yosef as if they were not in the middle of a conversation. So to begin with, I want to tell you a Dvar Torah I say each and every year, excuse me, because it's one of my favorite on the whole Torah, change the way I daven three times a day. And if you haven't heard me say it yet, maybe even if you have, it will uh, change the way you daven as well. So you'll excuse me if you've heard it from me before, but it's one of my favorite. So the Rechaim himself notes, we usually read these parashios separately. So this week's parasha begins with the drama. Vayigashe love Yehuda. There's a suspense. There's quiet in the room. The accusation has been leveled. The brothers are about to be forced to return to their father without Pinyamin, despite the promise and the guarantee. What will happen? Quiet. The music plays. The curtain falls. We don't find out till the next scene, till the next week. And in the next week, what happens? The silence is broken by Yehuda's bold, brazen courage. Vayigash, I love Yehuda, that Yehuda approaches Yosef. But the Orachayim points out, here's the problem. At the end of last week's parsha, before the curtain fell, Yehuda was already mid-sentence to Yosef. What is this great act of bravery and courage that Yehuda steps forward? He was in the middle of a sentence already in the end of last week's parsha. So the Rechaim says, yeah, in last week's parsha, it ended, Yehuda's talking to Yosef through interpreters, through advisors. Our parsha, the Vayigash, the stepping up, the stepping forward that Yehuda does, represents his attempt to have a more direct, intimate conversation. As opposed to the lawyer speaking before the courtroom, courtroom, Yehuda now says, Your Honor, may I approach the bench? Can I speak to you in your chambers? He appeals to him more privately, more directly. So though he was in the middle of a dialogue, he thinks he'll have a better chance of success if he can have Yosef's attention by himself. And what happens now? Yehuda steps up and he says, as our parsha begins, and he reviews the whole story, which in itself is an oddity we're not going to examine now. But as if Yosef didn't live the whole story, he reviews the whole story with him. We came down here, we were hungry, you offered us food, we have an old father, you said you're not going to give me more unless we bring the brother, we brought the brother, you falsely accused. He tells them the whole story as if Yosef is an outsider who hadn't experienced it and seen it himself. And then Yehuda gets to the punchline. And he's very forceful. And he says, this is it. Yehuda's punchline is, 
Here's the deal, Mr. Viceroy. Under no circumstances, I was the guarantor. There's no way we're leaving Binyamin. Take me instead. Yehuda steps up. And Yehuda shows responsibility. You know what responsibility is? Stephen Covey says responsibility is the ability to respond. Response, ability. It means that you're not passive, you're not complacent, you're not letting someone else take care of it. You bear responsibility. You have the ability to respond. Yehuda takes responsibility and he says, you can't leave Binyamin. Take me instead. How can I go back to my father and, my, and his son and the child and the lad will not be with me? There's no way. Lest I see evil that will befall my father, my father will surely die. He's lost already Yosef. There's no way after everything he's experienced in life, take me instead. These words of Yehuda, this confrontation, this boldness is so strong, so compelling, it in fact is the catalyst that makes Yosef reveal himself. They've been having this charade back and forth numerous times. Yosef has concealed his identity throughout. And what causes him to have an inability to conceal his identity any longer? This courage of Yehuda. What did Yehuda do that wasn't done before. So, first of all, Yehuda says, take me instead. If you understand, remember last week we talked about, according to the Ramban, all that Yehuda is orchestrating, I'm sorry, all that Yosef is orchestrating is to realize the dreams. For the dreams to come to fruition, to orchestrate events so that all the brothers would be assembled in one place, deferring to, bowing down, relying on him. But according to others, that wasn't the case. What Yosef so generously and magnanimously is orchestrating is the opportunity for his brothers to do tshuva gemurah. Tshuva gemurah, according to the Rambam, is only attained when? When you're in the exact same circumstance, when you have the same opportunity, the same temptation, the same desire, and yet you persevere, you endure, you don't give in. Yosef wants to reconcile. He doesn't want some shallow, fake reconciliation. When his brothers come to him desperate for provisions and food, a lesser person, a less generous person, would have said, Hey, don't you recognize me? It's me, Yosef. And either now I'm going to kill you for what you've done to me, or let's let bygones be bygones. But hey, it's me. Yosef holds back at great personal pain in order to orchestrate events so the brothers will have an opportunity for tshuva gemurah. Not tshuva, for the Rambam, what's tshuva? Tshuva is the opposite. If one does tshuva properly, they never find themselves in the same circumstance with the same opportunity. Proper tshuva means you identify what got you in the circumstance to begin with. Who were the temptation? What was the crowd? And you avoid being in the same place. And the Rambam Tshuva Gemura is being, and it leads to a separate question. According to the Rambam, if you do Tshuva properly, you can never in fact do Tshuva Gemura. You understand? We'll talk about that next Elul. But, 
But here the brothers, Yosef is orchestrating an opportunity for Tshuva Gemurah. And why is this the opportunity for Tshuva Gemurah that now Yosef is ready to reveal himself? What is the great chait? What's the great avera for which they need to do Tshuva Gemurah? They had abandoned a brother. They didn't get along and rather than try to reconcile and work things out, instead they were ready to kill him. And though they came back from wanting to kill him, they still ultimately sold him into slavery. They abandoned a brother. Yosef has successfully now orchestrated the scene for the opportunity to yet again abandon a brother. And what's unique about this brother other than all the others? Why would Yosef have orchestrated things if he wants to give them tshuva gemura to create as similar as a scenario as possible? to what they did to him, what brother would he choose? Binyamin. Why Binyamin? Binyamin is the only brother that shares the same parents. Yosef always felt like an outsider, having a different mother. So now my true full brother, who we are only half-brothers to the rest of you, are you going to abandon him the way you did me? And Yehuda steps up. They've changed. He takes responsibility. He's ready. And he tells Yosef, Take me instead. Take me. I promise to be his guarantor. Take me. I'll stay. Let him go. And with that, Yehuda, Yosef can stay silent no longer. Yehuda has exhibited leadership. He's asserted himself in order, in order to bear the freedom of his brother. The word that describes Yehuda's courage, his conviction, his tenacity to confront Yosef is Vayigash. He approaches. Vayigash means to step up, to stand out. He asserts himself. There are two other times in Tanakh when the word Vayigash is used, at least two other times that Chazal see as significant to bring it to a total of three. One is here with Yehuda. Another time was earlier, Avram Avinu, when he confronts God about Sodom, and he tries to implore God not to destroy Sodom, it says, Vayigash, Avram stepped up. And the third time, anyone know the third time? I see it's okay for me to repeat this Dvar Torah. <laughs> third time is with Eliyahu Hanavi. When Eliyahu challenges the Nevi'e Baal, the false prophets, over who is the true God, it says, Vayigash Eliyahu Hanavi Vayomer, Hashem Elokei Avram Yitzchak Hayom Yivada Ki Atar Elokim B'Yisrael. What do the three usages of Vayigash, the three places that describe Vayigash, what do they have in common? And the answer is, all involve incidents of a crisis, an urgent situation where others are passive, others are indifferent, others are blind to the pain or to the urgency of the moment. And in all three circumstances, Avram, Yehuda, Eliyahu, they choose responsibility. They're not apathetic, they're not complacent while their peers and colleagues are. They stand up, they step up, they seek to make a difference. Vayigash is to step forward, to step out of the crowd, to assert oneself and say, it's not okay. 
It's not okay what's going on. I protest. I object. I will get involved. Avram teaches what it means to have empathy for others. Even Rishayim, a city like Sodom, morally corrupt. But Avram says, I can't be passive to the suffering of others. What if there are 50 righteous and so on? Vayigash. Avram is unwilling to be passive or apathetic when it comes to the suffering of others. Yehuda teaches a further level of responsibility. Vaigash love Yehuda, that call Yisrael Arevim Zebazeh, that we're inextricably bound, that we are connected. And Elio Anavi teaches a third component, that not only do we have to care about even a city of Rishon, and certainly to step forward to assert leadership to protect our own Kol Yisrael Arevim, but even Kvod Shemayim, Elio Anavi says, that God Almighty suffers. We're learning now in Sharim Betfila on Wednesday mornings after the 745 minion. Rav Pincus has been developing based on sources the notion that God can be in pain. Now of course it's an anthropomorphism. God is never in pain. God doesn't feel. God doesn't have feelings. God is omnipotent, infinite, perfect, beyond our comprehension. But we ascribe to God human feelings so we can identify with Him. And here, Chazal ascribed to God a notion of pain. When, quote, Shemayim, when there's Chilal Hashem, I wrote about it last week, when there are supposedly observant people who leave a terrible impression, at best, and who violate crimes at worst, it sets back the mission. It, it pains the Almighty Himself. And we should feel and be sensitive to God's pain. Just like if something happened to a sibling of ours, we would feel our parents' pain. Well, when we see something with a sibling of ours' humanity, we should feel God's pain. Elio Navi teaches the Vayigash, asserting oneself and stepping out, is not just to protect fellow people, but even, quote, Shamayim, when the Nevi'e Baal are spewing their heresy and their lies, and everyone else is quiet. Elio Anavi asserts himself. And why is this my favorite Dvar Torah? For this punchline. The Ramah in Simon Tzadiyei quotes the Rokeach who says, do you know why we take three steps forward to begin our Amida? We take three steps forward to begin our Amida, Shacharis, Mincha, and Marav, to correspond with the three times Vayigash is used. That when I take those three steps forward to say my Shemona Esrei, it's not only to worry about my needs, my requests, my wants, my deficiencies, my crisis. But rather, I'm emulating one step for Avram, I'm caring about even people like Sodom. My second step is Yehuda, call Yisrael Arevim Zebazeh. I care about my fellow Jews and their issues. I'm advocating God. My davani includes an appeal, an advocacy, a protest on behalf of my fellow Jews. And my third step corresponds with Elio Navi, Hashem. I'm davening to you to help us protect and preserve Kvod Shemayim, to make Kiddush Hashem in the world and not, God forbid, the opposite. So this beginning of our parsha, this Vayigash, and again I apologize if you listen to this parsha shir every year, probably start off with this Dvar Torah every year because I just love it so much. That Judaism is not a religion that encourages us to concern ourselves only with our needs. Our needs must be couched in the context of caring about the greater needs. And to follow the lesson and the model of Avram, Yehuda, and Elio, Anavi, of Vayigash. 
It's very easy to be part of the crowd. Very easy to sit back and watch. Very easy to be passive and complacent. But that's not what Yadus is about. Avram, Yehuda, Elio, Vayigash. We three times a day, literally dramatize, we take three steps. And with each step we are to remember that in the tefillah I'm about to offer and present. It's not just about me. It is also about me. But it's about me in the context of all those who are relying on me. When we say the Mishaberach every Shabbos, I always announce the same thing. We're about to say the Mishaberach. When I pause, please insert the names, blah, 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 blah. Please think of the individuals whose names are listed in our weekly of our community who rely on us for our prayers. It's the Lashem, the language I use every Shabbos when we do the Mishaberach. It's not by accident. Trying to inspire a sense that, that we rely on one another for prayers, for advocacy, for protest to the Almighty. And that's what tefillah is a platform for, and that's what we're reminded and invited when we take those three steps forward at the beginning of the Amidah. When Yehuda confronts Yosef, he says, How can I go up to my father when the lad is not with me? They say homiletically, there are countless farim that say homiletically, this is a reference to chinuch, to children. Our responsibility to Jewish education, our responsibility to outreach. How can we go up to our father, Vanar and Enuiti? We abandon the next generation. We don't make the investment. We don't do what's necessary to ensure the continuity of our values. Eich el el avi. It's been used homiletically for centuries, millennia. How can I go up to my father, Vanar and Enuiti? Yosef can't take it anymore. And Yosef now reveals himself to his father. Uh, to his brothers, rather. And he tells them, Ani Yosef, I'm Yosef, Ha'od Avichai. Is my father still alive? Ha'od Avichai. Why does he say, is my father still alive? First of all, Chazasi in Ani Yosef, Ha'od Avichai, Oilo liyom adin, oilo liyom The reproach that we are going to face, the tochacha someday we will have to endure. What's the tochacha in Ani Yosef? In those two words, Ani Yosef. And the Bali Musa point out that the greatest Musa there is is confronting the reality of the bed that you've made that you have to sleep in. When you look in the mirror and you see the truth of who you've become or how you've behaved or the consequences that you've wrought, that is the greatest Musa. The that Rabbi said, the day of judgment will be just like what the brothers felt when Yosef says, Ani Yosef. Yosef says, I'm Yosef. He doesn't have to say more. At that moment, he doesn't have to say to them, Hey, you morons. You know what's in store for you now? How you feel now about me? I'm the viceroy of Egypt, what you did to me. Dreams coming true. You're all bowing down to me. He doesn't need to say one more word. So egregious. So profoundly wicked was their behavior that when they see all that it had led to, and the whole picture now comes into clarity, he doesn't need to say more than Ani Yosef. Why does he say, Auda Vichai? Every conversation he's had with these brothers, he's asked what question? First of all, it should have been a major clue to them that what did he never ask? About the mother. He always asked about the father, but they didn't catch on to that clue. 
But every conversation he said, how's the old man? Your father, he's good? Still alive? Still kicking? How's the old man? Every conversation. Now the big reveal and the first question is not something he asked on their previous trip. In the end of last week's Parsha, in this dialogue, in the same conversation, he's already asked, how's the old man? Yeah, he's good, he's good. Can we just get some food? And what's his first question at the reveal? Ha'ud Avichai. Is my father still alive? And what's peculiar about Ha'ud Avichai? Ha'ud Avinu. Hey guys, it's me. It's me. How's dad? Is our father still alive? He doesn't say that. He says, my father. Why might he say, my father? So the Mepharshim offer a few interpretations. One is, what was Yehuda's argument? I can't go back without Binyamin. Take me instead. What was his argument? What will happen if he goes back without Binyamin? My father will surely die. Yosef turns to him and says, Oh, if you go back without Binyamin, your father will surely die? It's me, Yosef. Dad's, is my dad still alive? Is my dad still alive? Now remember of Yoel ben Nunspshat, that Yosef thinks his father has orchestrated this whole thing. That just as Avram expelled Yishmael, and just as Yitzchak expelled Esav, Yaakov has now expelled Yosef. And he's done so by sending the brothers to the field to get him. That's what led off this whole chain of events. So certainly now he says, Oh yeah, dad can't live without Binyamin? How's dad been living without me? Ha'ud avichai? Dad okay without me? But that's the kind of negative way of viewing it. I choose the, the, the interpretation that appeals more to me is that Yosef is saying, I have a special relationship with my father. Ha'ud avi is the component of dad which is uniquely mine. Is that, is he still alive? Has dad, has a piece of dad died over the last 22 years in my absence? Does dad miss me still? Is that unique relationship? Yosef is desperate not only to reunite with his father, to see his father, but he's desperate to know what his father is feeling and thinking about him. In fact, fast forward a little bit. And Yosef, when the brothers bring the good news back to their father, right? first Paro joins in the welcome, Yosef sends them off with a bunch of gifts, which is peculiar by the way, because what does Yosef do? He gives more gifts to whom? To Binyamin. Has he not learned anything? Favoritism has not served them well. By the way, what happens? When they finally catch their breath, Yosef says to them something outrageous. What does he see in their eyes? What would be in your eyes 22 years after you sold your brother? Fear. Yosef sees in their eyes tremendous fear. And what are they fearful of? One word. Revenge. So what does Yosef do? He reassures them. No, 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 no. Come close. I'm Yosef, your brother. Don't be sad. Don't be worried. Why? Don't be afraid. You think you orchestrated this? You're not such hot shots. You should take the credit. You know who orchestrated it? The Almighty God. God sent me down here 
to put me in a position to be able to sustain you. Because our family has a mission. It's not our time. We yet have what to accomplish. So God has orchestrated everything to leave me here. God sent me here. I'm not going to take revenge. Don't worry. The Sefer Achinuch, the mitzvah, Losikom Velositor, and those mitzvahs, the Sefer Achinuch writes that if you take revenge against someone, it is a deficiency in your emuna. You'll say, one second, what? Somebody damaged me. Somebody hurt me. It's time to get even. What does that have to do with Hashem? Hashem, you stay there. I'm taking care of him down here. What does one thing have to do with the other? And the Sefer Achinuch says, if somebody unjustly damaged you, you are entitled to hold them accountable. Someone steals from you, recover what they've stolen. Somebody damaged you, sue them to recover your damages. You're entitled to hold them accountable. But what you're never entitled to do is to take revenge. Why? Because to take revenge, says the Sefer HaChinuch, is to suggest that God did not consent to the damage that you experienced. When the truth is, there is no one on earth who can hurt us unless God chose for us to be allowed to be hurt. For whatever reason... Whatever we're supposed to learn from it, however we're supposed to grow from it, for whatever reason it has to happen to us, we need to in that moment say, I'm going to travel down two paths simultaneously. I'm going to hold the person accountable through all the legal halachic means at my disposal. But in terms of revenge, I'm letting go. Because you know what? They never could have done this if God wasn't okay with it. I'm not willing to knock God out of the equation. I'm not willing to erase God from the picture. This couldn't have happened unless God wanted. And it's a very, very healthy way of thinking. We all have. Somebody gossips about you and it gets back to you. A whole group of people were talking about you. Somebody did something that ends up hurting your business, your finances, your life. You know, you're a victim of a fraud. You should all means possible, go recover what you can as a victim of the fraud. But the feelings, the energy you put into seeking revenge is not only wasted self-destructive energy, but it's a violation of emuna. It's an act of heresy, as if God is not part of that equation. So here Yosef turns to the brothers and he says, and by the way, are they held accountable? Maybe not in their lifetime, but when are the Jewish people held accountable for their sin? The Asara Haruge Malchus, the ten martyrs we read about on Tisha B'av and Yom Kippur, the Medrashecha tells us, were called to a tribunal over what the brothers had done to Yosef. Accountability is to come. But Yosef says, revenge? Never. They'll never take revenge. Because that would deny God's role in having orchestrated all the events that we have. Yosef here shows some extraordinary, extraordinary self-control, extraordinary faith. In that moment to say, he's comforting them, don't worry, relax. Never take revenge. This was God. I mentioned this past Shabbos at Ashkama Minyan, a thought from Rabbi Golden that my father shared with me. Yosef 
in rabbinic literature is called Yosef HaTzadik. Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov are called Avinu. They are our forefathers. Yosef, though true, he's the next generation, and among the Shvatim, they're no longer Avinu, but Yosef, we know, is distinguished. The other Shvatim are not invited to our sukkah. Yosef is. He makes it into the list. He is as if the last of the Avos. Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Yosef. So Yosef is not called Avinu, though. What is he called? Hatzadik. Why? And the classic reason is, he showed the willpower to persevere and resist the incredible temptations of the wife of Potiphar. But Rabbi Golden suggests a different answer. In his book, Rabbi Shmuel Golden of Englewood says, Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov experienced something Yosef didn't. God spoke directly to them. In their moments, in the junctures of their life, filled with doubt or anxiousness, God reassured them. God instructed them. God supported them. God directed them. Yosef never hears directly from Hashem. Look in the text. Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov are the beneficiaries of prophecy. They dialogue with the Almighty. Yosef does not. Yosef is the beginning of an era of silence. Hashem does not explicitly or overtly talk to us. And yet, Yosef not only discovers and sees and hears God as much as his forefathers, but Yosef does something even more. He talks about God more than his forefathers, despite the fact that he never merited to hear from God. Shem shamayim shkura b'fiv. Everything off of Yosef's lips. Mirz Hashem, Be'ezrus Hashem, Chaste Hashem. Everything is about Hashem. And here's another example. In the very moment of his revealing himself, he says, no, 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 it's not me. This is all, this is all God. Paro joins in with the welcome. They send these gifts. Yaakov receives, Yaakov receives the news. And he heads down to Mitzrayim. And it tells us Yosef is tremendously excited. Yaakov takes the journey down. And Yosef is very excited for the arrival. And when Yaakov comes, the Torah tells us, Vayisor Yaakov merkavdo vayal across Yisrael aviv goshna, vayero elav vayipolo tzavarav, vayefk al tzavarav od. What happens? Yosef gets his chariot ready. He goes to meet Yaakov, his father in Goshen. He appears before him. He fell on his neck and they cry. The moment Yaakov is saying, Shema, needs to be examined. Not very emotional reunion. How Yosef feels 22 years of of uh, alienation, they're finally reunited and his father's in the middle of davening. Can't interrupt. He's in the middle of Shema. That screams out, Darshani, you have to understand that. But here Rashi says, what does it mean, Vayira love? Says Rashi, Yosef Nira El Aviv. Yosef was seen by his father. Yosef can't wait, he's anticipating, he's been dreaming of this reunion. His father, the great figure in his life, his father, to whom he bears an amazing resemblance. His father, who has charged him with carrying the mission forward, finally reunited with his father. And the text describes, Vayera Elav, Rashi says, Yosef Nira Elaviv. He's seen by his father. And the Ramban asks, what in the world is Rashi explaining? What is Rashi adding to the Torah? And what is the Torah adding to the story? That Yosef is Nira El Aviv? Of course, 
If they now see each other, if they're reunited, of course Yosef is seen by his father. What is going on here? Rav Chaim Shmulevitz and Nesichas Musar answers, Torah is telling us that what Yosef highly anticipated, what Yosef counted down to, was not just seeing his father, but rather was what? Being seen by his father. It wasn't just that he wanted to see his father, he wanted his father to see him. And says Rechaim Shemalevitz, you see from here, the child, no matter what their age, Yosef is an adult, he's a father, he's the viceroy of Egypt, he's the treasurer of the economy. No matter what one's age, God has designed the human being to derive incredible pleasure from giving nachas to a parent. Yosef wants to be seen by his father. Not just Yosef wants to see his father and give a hug to his father. Yosef wants his father to see him. Look what he's accomplished. Look who he is. Look how he's been able to maintain his values despite being the first Jew in exile. Despite the culture he lives in and the pressures that are placed on him regularly. Yosef has not assimilated and he's desperate to be seen by his father. And maybe that's the explanation of the Ani Yosef Ha'od Avi Chai. Yosef was not just asking if his father still has a pulse, if he's living in the physical sense. He wants to know, is my father, who has nachas from me, who believes in me, who cares about me, does my father still long to be reunited with me? Does he miss me or has he given up hope? Has he forgotten? Has he moved on? My father, who I can't wait to see me, is that father still alive? It doesn't matter what age. It doesn't matter what stage of life. One remains always desperate to give nachas to their parents. And the same is true, by the way, in our relationship with the Ribbonu Shalom. Rabbi uh, Arya Kaplan writes that God designed the human emotional psyche that we derive incredible pleasure when we give nachas to a higher authority. Could be a parent, could be our boss, and it certainly is true with the Almighty. The greater the person to whom we give the nachas, the more pleasurable that feeling of giving nachas is. And so he writes, one should be motivated in and derive pleasure from mitzvos, the notion that one is giving nachas to Hashem. If you look at the very end of Mesilas Yisharim, the Ramchal concludes Mesilas Yisharim by saying, live your life in a way which gives nachas ruach to the Ribbon Shalom. You're giving God nachas. You have a choice, a moral dilemma. What to do? Always ask yourself, what will give greater nachas to Hashem? What does Hashem want me to do right now? What does Hashem expect from me in this circumstance? What will give God the greater sense of nachas ruach? Yaakov heads down to Mitzrayim. The Torah delineates the 70 who went with him. Yosef ensures his family settles not in the capital, in the metropolis, but rather in the suburb, in Goshen. He's seeking to preserve their identity, that they not assimilate. Yaakov and Paro meet. I'm sorry, yeah, Yaakov and Paro meet. We've talked about this in the past. 
Our overview is taking up the whole parsha, the whole class. We've talked about this in the past. It's a very, very anticlimactic story. If Yosef has been dreaming of seeing Yaakov, then he's also been dreaming of introducing Yaakov to the other major figure in his life, namely Paro. Yaakov can't wait for Yosef can't wait for Paro and Yaakov to meet. They finally meet. They have this conversation. It's an absolutely bizarre conversation. Instead of talking about the economy of the world, peace of the world, spirituality, evidence of God's existence, what do they talk about? Yaakov gives Paro a bracha. Paro looks at him and he says, Wow, are you old? Holy cow! You are one old man. The Ramban, the Rashbam both point out Paro had never met anyone with that longevity. He was very taken aback by how literally old Yaakov was. And maybe it wasn't very courteous, but he says out loud what he's thinking. Wow, you are really old. And Yaakov answers, he doesn't change the subject. He says, yeah, my life's been pretty rough. I'm 130 years old. My days have been pretty miserable. Then Yaakov gives Paro a bracha and says, I gesund, all the best in Goshen. Nice to have you here. That's it? That's the conversation? Rav Yaakov Mecklenburg, Rav Yaakov Tzvi Mecklenburg, the Ksaba Kabbalah. It's a beautiful essay by my great uncle, Rabbi Louis Nolman, on this topic of uh, what they were talking about. He quotes the, the uh, Ksaba Kabbalah. They were discussing Dvarim Shalmabakach. This is a story of small talk and the value of small talk. Small talk is not insignificant or a waste of time. Small talk is the foundation of what creates connection between people. And the value of small talk is if you only talk to people when there was an agenda, you wouldn't really have a relationship. All you'd ever be doing was trying to fulfill your agenda. But when you're willing to endure small talk, then that's the foundation, those are the seeds that you plant in a relationship. Yaakov and Paro are having dvorim shalmabikach, says the Ksav Kabbalah, elucidated by my great uncle in a beautiful article that now appears in his Sefer. There's other interpretations what they're talking about, but we have to keep moving. The famine now really strikes Egypt. They're really desperate. And Yosef's able to put into practice the plan that he had all along that had been revealed in, in uh, Paro's dreams. Okay. Let's go back and look at the psukim we're going to examine today. Perak Memvav. We're picking up from where we left off last year. According to my records... Last year we finished Perak Memvav, chapter 46, verse Dalad, Pasuk Dalad. It appears on the Art Scroll Stone Chumash, top of page 258-259. What's going on here? What are we in the middle of? This Perak began that Yaakov is traveling down to Egypt for this great reunion. God appears to him in the middle of the night. God appears to Yisrael and says, Yaakov, Yaakov. And Yaakov says, Hineni. And God says, Don't worry. You have nothing to fear. I am the God of your father. Don't be worried. You're going to be a great nation there. Why was he worried? Rashi says, What was he troubled by? Having to leave Eretz Yisrael. 
God is telling him, go down to you. It's okay, go down. Instead of Yosef coming up to you in Israel, in Canaan, go down to Chutz Laaretz. You're on Shlichut. It's okay to be on Shlichut. Go. Don't worry. You know, by the way, Yaakov's personality, it's a lot of anxiety in Yaakov's personality. He's nervous before he sees Esav. He's nervous with this. He's nervous with that. There's a lot of what looks like anxiety. Chazal see it as a healthy anxiety that he's worried for the right reasons. Shema Yigram Achet. Or maybe not because he has to go to Chutz Laaretz, but he's worried. And God says, don't worry. I'm going to make you a great nation. This is all part of the master plan. Pasuk Dalet. And here's why you have nothing to worry about, Yaakov, says God. Because guess what? I'm coming with you. I'm going down to Egypt with you, and I'm going to come out together with you. And you have nothing to worry about, because Yosef is going to put his hand over your eyes. What does that mean? God says, I'm going down. God says, I'm coming up. Yosef, put peekaboo over your eyes. What is going on here? So first of all, says Rashi, What does God mean when He tells Yaakov, I'm coming out with you? You're not going to spend eternity in Egypt. Not to worry. You're going to be buried in Israel. I'm coming out. You're going back up means you have nothing to, nothing to fear in that sense. You will be buried in Israel. What does it mean, Yosef will cover your eyes? So here we have another number of commentators. Says the Ibn Ezra, Yosef, Yosef, you know, when a person dies, and this is true today with the Hever Kadisha, when someone dies, we close their eyes. We close their mouth, we close their eyes, we put a sheet over them, including their head, open the window, light a candle, lay them on the ground. There's a whole procedure for the Hebrew Kadisha, but part of the Jewish tradition is you close the person's eyes. It's kind of a last respect. It's closure on their life. When the soul has been extracted from the body, you close their eyes. How is God reassuring Yaakov? Yaakov was really worried that he'd lay in wake with his eyes open. Oh, oh, thank God. Yosef will close my eyes. Okay, good. What is it about the fact that Yosef's going to close his eyes that reassures him? What is it? The Ibn Ezra is cryptic. He just says, yeah, the minog was, the living closed the eyes of the deceased. But the Orachayim is more explicit. What God was telling Yaakov was, Yosef's going to close your eyes, not the opposite. Don't worry. Yosef will not predecease you. 22 years you've been without Yosef, says God to Yaakov on his way down to Mitzrayim. I rest assured, Yosef will outlive you. You've experienced 22 years without him. You have him the rest of your life. Yosef will close your eyes, not the opposite. Yaakov has seemed so concerned always that Yosef is dead, will die, how could he live without him? 
God says, rest assured. Odin is coming, lo my love. Ki aliyah shal Yaakov lo tiyah b'chayim chiyusah el la'achar misa. V'omro v'yosef v'gam izayidah ki ain lo rishus lo tzayim b'chayim b'chayim chiyusah. K'deshi yikuyim dvar Hashem sh'yasiz yosef v'adol al'inav. V'miyetzei ain adavar yachal l'skayim. Says the Orchayim, a second interpretation, that maybe what God was telling Yaakov is that gam e'aleh, I'm going to go up with you, but it's only after you die. You're not coming back to Canaan in your lifetime. Yosef will close your eyes. Yosef is in Mitzrayim. You will die in Mitzrayim. Though I've promised you that I will return with you, it will not be during your lifetime. The Rashbam has a third interpretation. So far we've seen the Ibn Ezra says, this was the custom. So don't worry, you're not going to lie undignified. Your eyes will be closed. Though Rachaim adds on to that two interpretations, Yosef will outlive you, and you're not coming up in your lifetime. The Rashbam adds a fourth interpretation, I guess, third comment. Al inyanecha utzrachecha. Yishtadel la'asosim g'dersiv yashes yadol ashaninu. What the Pasuk is telling us is, Yosef will continue your mission. Yosef will close your eyes means Yosef will give you your final rest and will inherit your legacy, your mission. What's left for you to do. Yosef will t- take over your inyanim and your tzrachim. Okay, so four interpretations what that means. But God says, I'm coming out with you. What's the problem of God saying, I'm coming out with you? God did not come out with Yaakov in his lifetime. And here is a comment I want to share with you from Rabbi Soloveitchik. Says the alo. We understand the first half of the prophecy. I'll go down with you to Egypt. But the last part of the sentence doesn't make sense. God left Egypt not with Yaakov, but with the myriads of the children of Yisrael hundreds of years later. Clearly Moshe's exodus is considered as if it were Yaakov's personal triumph. I will also bring you up. God went out of Egypt with Yaakov, although the latter had been dead for hundreds of years. What's the solution to this mystery? Writes the Rav, As a natural being, as an individual who represents his genius, the charismatic personality is subject to a biological process of life, which ends in death. However, as a historical personality, he attains immortality. His immortality is attained through his proximity to a distant future and closeness to a remote past. Says the Rav, how could God promise Yaakov, I'm going to go up with you, if Yaakov is long dead by the time that his progeny go up? And says the Rav, you don't understand. That is God going up with Yaakov. We don't only believe in the finite mortal time that we're here in this world, but our lives gain value by the continuity in who we leave afterwards. Children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. If a person doesn't have children, nieces, nephews, the children in their lives that they've impacted, they've helped, they've supported, they've provided, they've taught. But the next generations are not separate and removed from us. They are the continuity of us. Our immortality is in the next generation. He doesn't say it here, the Rav, but I would like to add on. When Yaakov finds out that Yosef is alive, what does he say? If you go back in the Chumash, show you where it is, if I can find it quickly. 
What does he say? Uh, page 256. No, where is this? No, I'm sorry. It's after they're united. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. When Yosef and, and Yaakov are reunited, what does it say? Yaakov turns to him, here it is. Bottom of 260. Last two words. Vayomer Yisrael al Yosef. Amusa hapam. Acharei raosi espanecha. Ki odcha chai. Oh, they're reunited. And what is Yaakov here known as Yisrael? For whatever reason. He says, Amusa hapam. What does that mean? That's a lousy translation. Hapam really means... Amusa, I will die one time. Now that I see you, that you're alive. Rashi picks up on this. Midrash Savur, Hayisi Lamush Misos. I was on the path to die twice. In your absence, I would have no one here. And I was going to die a physical being. Now I was going to die twice. My soul would be extracted from my body. I'd die a physical death. But I also thought I was dying a spiritual death. I had no future, no continuity, no legacy. But now that I see you're alive, now I'm only going to die one time. And on that comment, the Rav says, Rashi's comments that had Yosef died, Yaakov himself would have died twice, both in this world and the next. Yaakov's task was to raise 12 sons who would ultimately become Knesset Yisrael. Knesset Yisrael is a confluence of talents, of approaches, of thought, of emotion. Without all 12 components, Knesset Yisrael would never arise and Yaakov's purpose would remain unfulfilled. He would have died in the next world. So, it's a similar comment in both places. That when God says to Yaakov, don't worry, I'm going down to Egypt and I'm coming out. And the Rav's bothered. What do you mean you're coming out? Yaakov doesn't come out till long after he's dead. And we said, no, by God taking Yaakov's children out, that is taking Yaakov out. That's his immortality. His soul continues to live through his children. He is taking Yaakov and his legacy out of Mitzrayim. And that's what Yaakov himself realizes with the Amusa Hapam. We only want to die once, not twice. Physically, our body dies. But we want the impact of our soul to live on forever. Okay, let's keep going. Pasukei. Vayakom Yaakov mi Be'er Shava Vayesu B'nei Yisrael as Yaakov Aviyem V'as Tapam V'as Neshayim Ba'agalos asher sholach parau L'aseis oso. Yaakov gets up from Beersheva with his sons. They carry their father Yaakov, their children, their wives in the wagons that Paro had sent. First of all, what do you mean the wagons that Paro had sent? Who sent the wagons? Yosef. So which is it? So, not only that, 
But Chazal tell us that when Yosef sent wagons, it wasn't just wagons. The brothers saw wagons. What did Yaakov see when they arrived? He saw the bookmark. To the brothers it was a wagon. To Yaakov it was a bookmark. What do I mean a bookmark? It was exactly where Yaakov and Yosef had last left off when they were learning. What were they learning about? The laws of Egla Arufa. The Agolos represented the Egla Arufa. Yosef sent these wagons as an embedded secret sign that even if you don't believe these brothers, believe me. Because I'm the only one who could have known what we were last learning. So why does the text tell us Paro sent them when in fact it was Yosef? So the Rav says that Paro sent the actual wagons. Yosef sent the imagery and the symbolism of the wagons, the connection with the Egla Rufa. What is Egla Rufa, by the way? The laws of Egla Rufa. If a person dies, an anonymous individual, we don't know their name, we don't know their murder, we don't know how it came to be. Torah delineates an entire process. The elders of the city have to measure to see which city the corpse is closest to. The elders of that city have to come and they have to break the neck of a young calf in the valley and they rest their hands and they make a proclamation, a confession. Yadeinu lo shavchu is damazeh. We didn't murder this Nebuch victim corpse lying here. What we think that these elders sitting in the base medrash all day are murderers. We need them. You know what? Why don't you round up anybody who's got a record? Let them confess we didn't murder. You're going to go find the most righteous people in the city. That's who you make have to confess they didn't in fact murder this corpse? So Chazal explained the confession is not that they didn't murder. What they're saying is we didn't send them away from our city without food, provisions, and someone to be malava them to walk them a few steps out of the city. We created a culture of a city of kindness, of giving, of hospitality, that this person didn't leave alone. It's not due to our negligence. It's not due to our lack of hospitality that they died. The story of Egla Arufa essentially is a story about leadership. You'll say, what do the elders of the city have to do with giving some food for the way and walking them out? And you see the degree to which a leader is responsible for the culture and the conduct and the customs of their city. That the leader has to say, we created a culture, that person didn't walk out alone. They weren't offered hospitality. Why was Yaakov learning that with Yosef? Because he was teaching Yosef about leadership. Remember, Vaviv Shamar Sadavar. Yaakov was critical to Yosef of sharing his dreams. Was he critical of the dreams themselves? Vaviv Shamar Sadavar. Yaakov had been waiting for these dreams to come true. He was preparing his Yosef to be a leader. And that was part of leadership, Egla Rufa. And Yosef is sending this message back. I'm now a leader, Dad. I'm the viceroy of Egypt. And I'm ready to take on leadership within our family. Take these wagons and come down here. Pasuk Vav. Vayichuas Miknayim. By the way, Vayisu, let's go back one second. Pasukay, Vayakum Yaakov mi Be'er Shava. Yaakov left Be'er Shava. Vayisu, and who who lifted him? Vayisu bnei. The Svorna points out something very significant. Mark your chumash, unless it belongs to the shul. Svorna says, Vayisu bnei Yisro, shayutzricha mikan ve'elach liyos am 
B'nai Yisrael. This is the first time that we see they, the brothers, are being called, they're being addressed as a group. B'nai Yisrael. It's time to heal. It's time to come together. It's enough of the alienation. It's enough of the enmity. It's time to be one unit, with one mission, with one covenant. Mikan ve'elech, from now on, going forward, says the Svarno, B'nai Yisrael. They, as one group, put Yaakov on their shoulders and carry him down. We're not B'nai Yaakov. It's B'nai Yisrael. Again, coming back to what we've talked about the last few weeks. Pasuk vav, Vayichu es mekneim v'esrechusham, Asher rashu b'eretz kenan v'ayavu mitzrayma, Yaakov v'chol zarawito. They take their cattle, all of their possessions that they had amassed, accumulated in Canaan, they come to Mitzrayim, Yaakov and all of his descendants after him. Banov uvnei vanav ito, binosav uvnos banav, v'chol zarao hevi ito Mitzrayim. Who does he bring? He brings his sons, his grandsons, his daughters, his granddaughters, all his descendants came together with him. Who are the Benos Banav? In the plural, the daughters of his sons. Who are they? Rashi tells us, none other than Serach Bas Asher, V'yocheved Bas Levi. Serach, the daughter of Asher, and Yocheved, Moshe's mother, the daughter of Levi. This Serach is a very interesting personality. My sister-in-law once gave all shear here, a woman's class on Serach Bas Asher. The Targum earlier in our Parsha tells us that when they go back and inform Yaakov, your precious Yosef is still alive, who is the one who tells Yaakov? It's his granddaughter Serach. It doesn't say it in the Targum. It says it elsewhere, which is much later than Tanaitic literature. How did she tell him? She used to play the harp and sing to him. It calmed him. All those years of anxiousness, of Yosef's absence, all those years of pain and grief and suffering, she would calm his nerves. And so she was therefore the perfect person, she was in the perfect position to tell Yaakov. Serach Bas Asher is a fascinating personality, whether literally as a person or the idea of Serach Bas Asher, what she represents, but she comes up numerous times telling Yaakov here when she's counted among the 70 who go down to Mitzrayim, the beginning of Sefer Yoshua, she's listed among those who enter the land. We're talking 250, 60 years later. Imagine if Paro saw her, what he would have said. <laughs> she lives even longer than that. Sefer Shmuel talks about Serach Bas Asher. She's a fascinating person. In fact, it says that in the merit of her righteousness, she didn't die. She somehow ascended to Gan Eden without first experiencing death. One of the few people, Lomes, that she never died. It's worthy of exploring. She's a very interesting personality in her own right. So Serach is the daughter, and Yocheved Bas Levi. Moshe's mother, Yocheved. And then the Torah continues. Now we list the names of those who came to Egypt. Why does it say Ha Ba'im? What should it say? Ba'u. 
who previously came, Rashi says, Hashem ba'im. Because the narrator, God, to include us in the story as if it's unfolding, describes it in the present, even though by the time Moshe is recording the Torah, <coughs> it already is something that happened in, <coughs> in the past. We're going to have to end here, but what's mysterious is, we know there were 70, we have a tradition, there are 70 who came down to Egypt. When you count the names, the lineage that's about to be listed here, what number do you arrive at? 67. If you add Yosef's two sons who were born in Egypt, you get two, you're missing one. Who is the 70th? Who's the 70th? The Orchaim says, it's God Himself. The Shechina went down to Mitzrayim. God is with us even in our difficult circumstances. Others say it's Yaakov. Others say it's Yosef. There's a whole... And what is the significance of each of these interpretations? I guess we're going to have to pick up with this next year. But I want to call your attention to a Ramban. When the Ramban talks about that there are 33, it's on Pasuk Tezvav. Leah had 33 children. Only the text counts 32 of them. Who's the 33rd? And there's a whole discussion about Yocheved. Yocheved is born at the entrance to Mitzrayim. Is she among those who came to Egypt? Is she among those who were already born in Egypt? And the circumstances of her birth is miraculous. Of Moshe. Sorry, how old Yocheved is when Moshe is born? So the Ramban here has a very, very important long comment on the nature of miracles. Hidden miracles, revealed miracles, an attitude towards nature. The Ramban and the Rambam have a fundamental disagreement on the Jewish view of miracles. Again, it's something that we'll pick up with Amir Tzah Hashem. Next year, Parshas Vayigash. Have a fantastic week.